Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pilucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gallup. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? As if I didn't well, Massimo, know. Massimo, today, you and I are going to tackle a question that uh, is often discussed um, in, in debates about religion or, you know, conversations at skeptic or atheist conferences. The question is, would the world be better off without religion? Ah. Um, and so, so this is often discussed, but I, I hope that um, in our discussion, we can get into some of the, like, common fallacies or like common problems with the way that people usually discuss it because i think there are a bunch yes definitely i mean uh, in fact what prompted um this topic is a really interesting sort of in-depth article uh that appeared recently you know a few months ago in skeptical inquiry by scott lillenfeld mm-hmm. and uh rahel um, amirati and uh, scott actually has been one of our guests uh, if, if you remember, he was uh, with us, uh, together with uh, Sally Sattel, talking about the seductive mm-hmm. appeal of mindless neuroscience, episode 96, to be precise. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, you're right. The, the, you, there's plenty of people who make very confident statements about, uh, of course, the world would be better without religion, or of course, the world would be a complete chaos without religion. And um, there is very little evidence that actually bears on the question. Uh, to begin with, um, there's some evidence, and, and, and the evidence that there is uh, available, uh, Scott and, and his uh, co-author pointed out, it's usually ignored by, by people uh, that have these discussions. And one of the things that annoys me about this thing is that, uh, these, these issues, is that, you know, I do expect one side of the issue to ignore the data. Um, but I don't, but I'm really bothered by when, when, when skeptics and, you know, atheists who, think of themselves as skeptics as well. In other words, with people that that value, you know, rational thinking, evidence-based, anything, uh, then they go on and sort of make these statements with non- the, not only on the basis of no evidence, but in fact um, uh, sometimes contra the evidence. I mean, there's a couple of interesting mm-hmm. examples uh, that Scott and Rahel mentioned in, in, their, in their article. Uh, one is that in breaking the spell, uh, Dan Dennett claims that there are no studies bearing on the question of religiosity and violence, but in fact, there are. <laughs> there are actually several dozen stu- such studies and at least two large reviews. And, uh, and Dan just didn't, uh, you know, obviously didn't know about it. I'm not saying that, that he just sort of ignored it on purpose. But it's kind of, you know, before you make that kind of statement, you know, use Google and check it out. It, it's Google scholars in particular. Um, similarly, in The God Delusion, Dawkins uh, makes the claim that uh, there's a lack of evidence on the question. And he's, the only thing that he cites is um, his friend Sam Harris, uh, about this idea that there is a correlation between uh, incidents of sort of violence in uh, and states in the United States that have higher degree of religiosity, but again, Dawkins doesn't seem to be aware that there are dozens of peer-reviewed studies actually available on the issue, and also uh, the idea of citing um, uh, sort of population-level studies as evidence is at the very least controversial because. Um, 
you know, Scott points out that from a statistical perspective, it's often not the case that you can scale up or down things from a population level to an individual level. Uh, you may find a correlation between two variables at the population level, which actually doesn't hold in the individual level, and it's the result of essentially a sort of artifactual third uh, um, effects or third variable effects and things like that. So it's very weak evidence to begin with. But uh, again, Dawkins just seems to ignore the fact that actually there are uh, studies out there about this, this sort of thing. So the whole thing is um, is an interesting topic per se, I think, but it's also interesting that um, the discussions of the topic within the skeptic community have been curiously, I would say, uh, lacking in the usual evidence-based approach. I, that's a great, great <laughs> intro to the to the <laughs> topic and some of my problems with it as well. There were a couple sort of styles of um, of argument about this topic that I, I see just across the board, including from um, self-professed self skeptics that I want to complain about. Um, one Go of right them ahead, is... complain. <laughs> I'm sorry? Go right ahead, complain. Oh, I, I thank you, I shall. <laughs> um, what, what, the first of the two is citing examples of uh, religious violence or citing examples of, um, you know, religion doing good in the world. Right. Um, and, I, and Scott also... Uh, uh, references some of these examples from from the books you, you referenced, like the God Delusion. So, for example, in the intro to God Delusion, Dawkins says, "Imagine with John Lennon a world with no religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9/11, no crusades, no witch hunts, no Israeli-Palestinian wars, etc., etc., etc." So these are all like you know examples in support of the case that religion uh, is making the world a worse place, a, a less humane place. Um, and, and, of course, religious people have their examples as well. Um, That's and, right. In, and that is just the trouble, right? World, that like, yeah, imagine a world without Stalin, without Pol Pot, without Mao, and so on and so forth. And all the other cases in which, yes, in which very cruel and inhumane things were done not in the name of religion. So it doesn't, like, citing examples doesn't really tell you very much about the overall effect, the net effect of, of religion. Um, and then the other category I want to, to vent about is this kind of, a priori reasoning, um, mm -hmm. or if not entirely a priori, then at least sort of abstract principles um, that people cite as to why religion makes the world a worse place. Um, like, I'm going to paraphrase this one, something along the lines of, you know, like in any world, like good people can do good and evil people can do evil. Um, but in order to have good people do evil, you need religion. Yeah, that's Stephen And Weinberg, the logic behind right? that is, you know, of course, like... Uh, if someone's well-intentioned, but they have a false model of the world and of how the world works, then they can totally think they're doing good by, you know, baptizing and then killing babies if they think that that will lead to, you know, that will prevent an eternity of suffering for those babies. So, and, and that I'm, there are cases in which, like, well-intentioned people did harm to the world because religion gave them a false model of the world. Um, but, but again, there are plenty of examples of well-intentioned people or people who are basically good doing harm to others because of other totally non-religion related effects like, uh, you know, conformity or authority effects, which are just very deeply ingrained in the human brain. If you set up a, an ashes conformity experiment or, um, or a, what was the name of this one? The, the experiment where, uh, subjects gave electric, increasingly oh, severe electric shocks. Yeah. The Milgram, Milgram Thank you. Yeah. The Milgram experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, those didn't really have anything to do with religion. So so this sort of abstract logic can sound very convincing that like, oh, well, of course, a good person would only do evil if like religion gave them a false model. <laughs> right. um, but but again, like it just doesn't look at the full story. And, and when you look at the full story, the picture just becomes so much murkier. 
Yeah, it does. And, and um, uh, there are a couple of things uh, to, to follow up on, on, on your observations. W one is, you know, whenever the, so the religious side of the, of the debate brings up uh, the usual suspects uh, as perpetrators of violence, uh, like the ones that I just mentioned, you know, um, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, arguably, although in the case of Hitler, the situation is a little less clear where, you know, to what extent he actually was a Christian or he was inspired by Norse mythology right. or whatever. Oh, can I very briefly interject and sure. just say that my, my beloved younger brother, Jesse, who... Um, uh, he's worked for the Secular Student Alliance and uh, a bunch of other humanist and secular organizations. But years ago, um, when he was working, I think, for the American Humanist Association, um, he appeared on Fox to uh, to debate um, the uh, the leader of the Catholic League, uh, Bill Donahue, yeah. I believe his name was. Yeah. Um, and in the space of – it was literally a two-minute segment in which Jesse, like – didn't get to say very much because uh, Bill Donahue barreled over him when he tried, of course, it right. being Fox. Um, but in the course of that mere two-minute segment, uh, Jesse got compared to Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and my favorite one was Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> because they were all atheists, see? Oh, of course. Well, naturally. <laughs> right. But the, the, uh, but the objection uh, from sort of the religious side of the debate, as I said, you know, it's, it's usually br to bring up these, those kind of examples. And the counter that I've heard, um, in, fact, I, in fact, I've read, uh, I, I believe, in the God Delusion, uh, Dawkins, make is, well, well those are not really examples of, you know, secular atheist societies. They're just, you know, dictatorships and, uh, and, and they repressed religion because it wasn't convenient for them. Well, that may very well be true, but the fact is then that that becomes, you know, arguing that way, uh, besides the fact that it's, it tends to ignore, you know, s again, the empirical data sort of argue a priori, um, but it, it sort of gets very close to a, a, a true Scotsman's fallacy. I mean, you know, of course, that one was not really a, uh, you know, an example of uh, an atheist uh, g um, society. Well, okay, if that one wasn't, do we have any examples uh, that we can right. bring up? Uh, and, of course, the same game can be played by the religious, right? You know, it's like, well, the, when, when people, in fact, we, we hear that all the time. Uh, when some Islamic extremist uh, does something horrible, uh, you hear immediately a number of people put it, well, that's not true Islam. That's not you know, a reflection of. Uh, and, there, and there is some truth to that because there are, of course, different ways of interpreting any religion. And, uh, and therefore, uh, it, arguing that way, either pro or con, it really just doesn't seem to get people, uh, people anywhere. Um, the other thing, actually, that I wanted to mention was about your, your reference to the Milgram experiments. As it turns out, Scott points out that there is a, an exception of um, – you're right, typically they don't deal with the issue of religiosity in atheism. But there is an exception. There is a, a, um, an experiment, uh, experiment done on the same line, in, lines in 19, back in 1972, which mm – -hmm. Apparently, it's not been replicated so far. And it was small, so, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's only a tentative conclusion. But uh, that particular experiment actually looked at uh, the differences, if any, between uh, religious people, very religious people, and, you know, non-religious people and very non-religious people uh, in their uh, tendency to obey the authority of the scientist and uh, actually administer the electrical shocks to the, to the subjects. Um, and the results were kind of interesting because it was um, the experiment found out that extremely religious and extremely non-religious people actually were less likely than moderately religious or moderately non-religious people to administer the shock. And it's not clear huh. why. What's I mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, there's, there's no particular uh, reason a priori to think that that is the case. But apparently there are differences. And of course, as I said, the study was small, uh, so it probably needed to be repeated. But um, 
but there may be differences in in the in the way in which ideologically committed or non-committed people may respond to authority or or, the, or, or to certain situations that involve uh, violence. Um, the the other thing to point out, of course, is that technically the right experiments simply cannot be done. Uh, that well, is. That was- that was going to be my question. Right, yeah. right. So because the, 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 the counterfactual, I mean, we're talking about a counterfactual. You know, what if there were, you know, it, citing the John Lennon song, you know, imagine that. Well, imagining that means that we're doing a, we're engaging in a counterfactual. And the truth of, of counterfactuals is notoriously difficult to ascertain, especially when uh, we're talking about counterfactuals that have to do with empirical uh, evidence as opposed to sort of logical problems. Mm-hmm. And um, so clearly, I mean, you know, for obvious reasons, both ethical and logistical, one cannot possibly set up, you know, subsets of societies where uh, a group of people uh, never heard of, of religion and they were entirely brought up secularly and, and uh, another subgroup, you know, a control group where in fact that they were uh, exposed to different kinds of religion and then you go on and follow them throughout their lives and see how prone to violence or antisocial behavior they are. That simply cannot be done. That doesn't mean, however, that there are no relevant data because there are uh, sort of epidemiological style, you know, sort of correlational styles, uh, correlational type uh, data that do address the question of pro-social and anti-social behavior and how it is uh, correlated or connected with uh, degrees of religiosity. So, so again, the, the fact that uh, in these discussions, really the, the actual empirical evidence, such as it is, and we, with the limitations that, that um, it has, doesn't come up, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of disturbing. I wonder if you could give people free vouchers to like travel to church or something. I'm trying to set up <laughs> some kind of well, I know church is free, but like somehow make it easier for some people to get to church than others. So if you had people who were kind of on the fence about like, yeah, maybe I should go to church, I don't know, like, yeah, I'd probably do it if it were really easy and you like randomized, you know, for half of them, like made it like really easy to go to church to see if, you know, ten years later there was any difference in their outcomes. Um, maybe that wouldn't pass muster with the human subjects board. I'm not sure. Uh, possibly um, not. Although one but, could one could use Facebook. I mean, apparently recently, uh, you know, you know that both P- P- Facebook and uh, uh, what is it, the uh, OK Cupid, the dating site, have got been into, experimenting on their user yeah, base. they got into trouble. Surreptitiously. Be- that's right. They got in trouble because they experimented with their users by presenting them with news or profiles. Uh, on a systematic basis and uh, without, of course, telling them that they were doing so. And uh, that right. probably ran afoul of a couple of regulations on human experimentation. Um, yeah, so I'm, I, I wanted to get your sense of how, how much you think we can infer from the correlational data. Like, so, so, you know, correlations are at least a little evidence. They're not, you know, a single correlation where there could be any number of confounding factors explaining, you know, causing the the correlation other than the causal relation you're interested in is not very much evidence. But, you know, it's a tiny bit of evidence. And if you have a bunch of correlations all pointing the exact same direction, um, that starts to be a little bit more evidence. It's, you know, at least a little more likely in the world in which uh, there is a causal effect than in the world in which there isn't. Correct. So, so let's, uh, ta- let's Bayesian take evidence look. in that sense. Yeah, let's take a look at some of the examples that um, uh, Scott and Rahel point out, uh, bring up from the primary literature. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for instance, one of the, the ones that I find most interesting, but at the same time, uh, sort of uh, also in, in, includes a cautionary tale right there, uh, is a study by uh, Bayer and Wright published in 2001. I think this is a meta-analysis. So this is one of those studies that looks at a bunch of other studies. And and sort of uh, and statistically uh, uh, averages out the results and and looks at whether there are consistent trends basically across across studies, and they were looking at correlations uh, between religiosity and crime, 
and the tendency mm -hmm. to, to commit crime. And they found, in fact, a uh, statistically significant uh, negative correlation uh, between the two. In other words, the more religious you are, the less likely you are to commit crimes. And interestingly, even though this, the size of the correlation was small, the magnitude was um, a minus, uh, you know, R equal minus 0.12, which is very small, um, even though it was it's not that small similar. for the social science. I mean, it's small, well, but it's not. You know, if like, you take it's hard to find super strong effects. Correct. Mm. But if you take the square of that, which gives you the um, amount of variance yeah. that is explained by the correlation, it's only 1.5%. That, mm. <laughs> that means that variation in crime uh, is only, you know, only about 1% to 2% of the variation in crime uh, in the population is actually explained by statistically by the, by the degree of religiosity. So that means there's mm -hmm. a 98% that remains unexplained. But nonetheless, the, the, interesting, the, the fact that was interesting was not only that the correlation was negative and statistically significant, but it was consistently so across studies. That is, in all the studies that they looked at, there was a, a negative correlation. It was never positive. It was never non-significant. So yeah, see, now, I think that's you know, like... Yeah, there ahead. could still be some confounding factor, factor consistent across all the studies. Sure. But it does, like, finding that consistent pattern again and again and again does, like, does rule out some of the, you know, a bunch of the the possible worlds in which there were just like random noise or or con confounders specific to that case that were causing the correlation that that didn't have anything to do with causality. That's right. I mean, you know, as as we as you pointed out a minute ago, I mean, correlation is not causation. Although statisticians will remind you that they are often uh, highly correlated. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Massimo, have you seen the XKCD comic about uh, correlation correlation causation? Um, where the I, I forget the actual comic, but the like the alt text um, that appears when you hover your mouse cursor over the comic says um, correlation doesn't imply causation, but it does waggle its eyebrows suggestively and mouth look over there. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know you're absolutely right. The, 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 you, one cannot jump to, to causal explanations or causal scenarios. There may be uh, other variables playing in uh, that uh, that would in fact. Uh, give you a, a scenario that is very different from what it looks like, you know, sort of uh, prima facie, you know, the, the first first sight. But nonetheless, if you do have data, and in this case there are data, and data are consistent, uh, then it seems like you know an evidence-based person, you know, an evidence-inclined person would have at least to have to acknowledge that a there is data out there, and it goes contrary to my thesis superficially. There may be an explanation. Uh, the correlation is very small. Therefore, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not at all of a sudden we had to, to, to uh, compel people to become religious because after all, the, 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 the uh, uh, effect on uh, degree of violence is, is very small. But nonetheless, these are things that need to be taken seriously if one considers oneself a, a uh, you know, a skeptic. Now, uh, in terms of the um, other variables and, you know, sort of confounding effects, um, even, even there, one can do something in uh, uh, even just with correlational studies because i mean the, the social sci social scientists have become pretty adept at doing these kind of things because often they deal with only correlation uh, studies and just like epidemiologists do for instance uh, nonetheless what you can do is um, or uh, in fact not just epidemiologists but a lot of other applications in, in medicine like you know when when you want to study the effects of diets on, on weight Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to actually do completely controlled you know, experiments, and, and often you just rely on populational data. But if you have enough other measurements of other things that may be confounding effects, you can statistically control, if not experimentally control for those. So the same goes for social uh, science uh, data. And in that particular, uh, those particular studies, the Byron Wright that I, was, that I mentioned a minute ago, um, the effect, in fact, seems to be modulated by the attendance 
to church and other places of worship. In other words, it's not just religiosity per se, but you have to go to church. And it also seems to be particularly um, uh, relevant. The effect seems to be particularly relevant for uh, what is called intrinsic religiosity. So these are people who mm-hmm. uh, go to church because they want to, not because there is social pressure, or even they don't actually do- go to church, they pray on their own, that sort of stuff. So these are people who actually truly, fundamentally believe uh, in, in, their, in their religion. Those are the people that are less likely to engage in, uh, you know, in violence, in, in crime. Um, not, not just going to, ch- going to church per se, it's not going to do it. And again, so you can, you can, researchers can actually control for these kinds of confounding variables in this particular case. Well, is it the religiosity, you know, the, the degree of belief, or is it the going to church? Well, it, is, it turns out it seems to be the degree of religiosity, not the going to church. So, Interesting, because often a hypothesis that I hear uh, advanced often by, you know, atheists or, or secular humanists in response to these correlations is, well, it, you know, it seems plausible that it's not really the the church per se or the content of the church that causes more pro-social behavior, but the fact that you're part of this community, right. you know, yes. that, which seemed quite plausible to me. So it I guess I'm plausible. a little surprised that when you, right. that like controlling right. for re- religiosity reduces the effect, but controlling for social attendance doesn't right. actually. Right. So, it, you know, it, again, it's one of those cases where, yes, it seems plausible. So, so, um, uh, it seems like that would be one thing to check, you know, one direction, one 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 element to check. But as you were saying earlier, just because something is plausible, it doesn't it doesn't license to you know conclude thing, uh, make uh, reach conclusions a, a priori. Um, it turns out there is there is other uh, information, you know, empirical information about these things. For instance, religiosity is statistically related to self control and moderation. Uh, and even worse for in the sense that people with more self control are more likely to stick to ah. religion. That that's that's unclear. That's uh, okay. in fact the in fact Scott um, uh, immediately points out that the correlation could go either way. It could be that okay. religiosity uh, leads to self control and moderation, uh, perhaps because you're you know you buy into a certain kind of you know look, way of looking at the world. I mean, and, and, uh, don't think just uh, just about sort of Christianity or the Judeo Christian um, Muslim religions, but also you know imagine. Know, practicing Buddhism or practicing any kind of, of sort of spiritual practice that has to that is based on self-control and moderation. There's a bunch of them. Um, so it could be that it's the religiosity or the practice that leads to self-control, or it could be, in fact, you're right that people who are naturally prone to self, you know, more more capable of self-control, uh, become uh, more religious. Um, the bad news for us seculars is that not only it is true that religiosity is statistically correlated with self-control and moderation, but it's also true that lack of religiosity is moderately correlated, in fact, weakly correlated, with psychopathological traits. <laughs> so mm. now, that doesn't mean, of course, that if you're an atheist, you're a psychopath, um, obviously. Uh, but I hope it does that mean- anyone who's been listening to our show for a while would not draw that inference from your statement. I hope so. Um, but at the same time, it is, again, th- it, it's, it's the kind of information that sort of clearly makes the whole debate much more subtle and much more complicated, right? It's, it's, it's possible, for instance, and of course, again, even in the second case, it's not clear which way the causality goes. I mean, is it that uh, atheism attracts people with psychopathological traits? Uh, or is it that being an atheist makes you, um, you know, uh, develop psychopathological traits? I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't know. And and again, the correlation is is very weak, which means that the overwhelming majority of atheists are not psychopaths, or they don't have psychopathological traits. Um, right. But you know, so the, the thing can go on and on. I mean, there's there's research that shows that intrinsic religiosity, for instance, in high school students, uh, makes them more prone to prosocial and empathic behavior. 
Um, and there is also research that shows that religious people are capable of more sophisticated moral reasoning than average. Uh, so all these things are, and, and one of my favorite is actually that um, you can subconsciously prime people with religious references, like uh, you can expose them to a, a scrambled words that, that, that if they were not scrambled, they would spell God or religions or heaven or something mm-hmm. like that. And that increases their generosity. Uh, so if you're primed um, for for religious um, uh, sort of thoughts, essentially, uh, you you as a as a your behavior becomes more generous. So all of those things are I find very interesting, and at the very least, sort of should be cautioning us about making sort of these sweeping statements about a world without religion, which is, would be just much better, obvious and obviously so. Uh, it doesn't seem obvious right, at all. For sure. Um. I guess, so yes, I, I agree it's interesting. I agree it's not at all clear, or I don't think that it should be clear to, to people that, uh, that you know, growing up religious makes people better, uh, better or worse people than uh, growing up non-religious or deconverting. Um, but I, I want to, like, be more precise about what, uh, what the conditions are that we're really comparing so we don't draw the wrong right. conclusion. Um, because I think it would be easy to look at these like mildly negative correlations between um, between like non-religion and uh, like pro-social behavior and conclude that, well, then we shouldn't be trying to like promote secularism or secular, you know, uh, beliefs or values or whatever. Um, And I think that would be wrong um, for a few reasons, but, but particularly because uh, all that these correlations show, even if they do indicate causality, all they show is that uh, the kind of non the kind of religion um, and non religion that we currently have that are currently dominant, like don't give the clear win to non religion. Um, but that doesn't mean that secular humanism, for example, something that takes a secular worldview um, that's like actually quite moral and pro social, wouldn't be a better alternative to the religion that currently exists, even if that religion is currently superior in mor- in a moral sense and in its moral effects to the current non-religion that exists. Does that yeah, make sense? No, that's right. That, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, you know, we're only comparing what we have available. And besides, these studies are limited in a variety of ways. Besides the one that, uh, that we mentioned already, uh, there are essentially no studies that I could uh, see, and, and certainly Scott and Rahel don't, don't mention any, specifically on the atheist secular humanist community. Often the so-called non-religious are actually people who, you know, either were religious and then sort of just uh, abandoned the thing, but they don't they they have not developed an alternative, they have not embraced any alternative positive system. And I could imagine or or people who left church. I mean people can leave church for all sorts of reasons, you know, personal trauma, uh, you know, sickness or or uh, sort of depression. So right. it's not clear at all, in fact, that, uh, that the right controls and the right populations have been studied. There have been very few, if any, studies on the sociology of the, sort of the atheist and skeptic community. Um, so those, are all need, those all need to be done. And not only that, but as um, um, we've said several times already, the, the causality is also a big, a big issue. We, you know, we don't know, even if these correlations are correct, you know, are reflective of an actual, you know, the, the, the actual state of affairs out there in the, in the world, we don't have a grasp on the uh, causality. And to do that, one would have to do, to begin to do that, one would have to do uh, sort of longitudinal studies, long-term longitudinal studies, where you follow cohorts of people over long periods of time. Again, this is analogous to what people do in medical research uh, when there are complex um, 
traits that are being studied, like uh, like the effect of diets or, or exercise or things like that. You have to, to follow people for you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And these kind of things have not been done and certainly not been done on uh, atheist communities and secular communities. So all of these need definitely to be um, you know, sort of kept in mind as, um, as disclaimers while we're, we're thinking about all of this. So, so Massimo, does, does having learned about all of this research uh, change your attitude at all about promoting secularism? Uh, no. And if not, why not? No, it, do- it doesn't because, uh, um, because I think that, uh, that um, there are non-consequentialist, uh, sort of, I, I usually start from a non-consequentialist uh, attitude in terms of sort of ethics. I think that secular humanism is about ethics. It's, it's a philosophy of life. And since I don't um, consider myself, I don't see things in terms of ethics from a consequentialist, you know, utilitarian perspective. I'm not bound only by the consequences of certain things. Of course, the consequences do enter into it. Is it if, if it turned out, for instance, that um, you know, teaching psychohumanism uh, has a high chance of producing uh, psychopaths who go on and have you know on rampages and kill people, well, I might give it you know second, third, and fourth thought, perhaps. But because the correlations are so small, and because the causality is not anything but um, uh, clear, uh, then I still think that what seem like good ideas and positive philosophies uh, need to be um, uh, pursued and, and taught. And also because I subscribe to the idea that um, teaching a lie or teaching something you know it's wrong or, it's not, or you know it's not true uh, is in fact unethical. I mean, as a, um, well, as you, you teaching someone religion, knowing in, internally that it isn't true, seems like a very different case than allowing other people to teach things that they believe are true, but you don't, right? Wouldn't sure. those be different even under your non-consequentialist code? Uh, yes, that, w- that would definitely be different. But what I was saying was in, in, re- in response to your idea, you know, should I be keep teaching and pushing, you know, uh, ethical, uh, sorry, secular humanism? Well, if, if not, would I start teaching, you know, would, start, would I start encouraging people to embrace a religion? I, I wouldn't do that. Oh. Right. Come on, those aren't your two options. Like no, no, no. The obvious third option is just like talk about other stuff that do- doesn't relate to religion or or atheism, like you know promoting science or something without talking about religion. Uh, yes, that is true. But um, I do think it's important to teach people a philosophy, <laughs> um, as in as in you know a way of looking at life, a way of looking at values, a way of making decisions. So science by itself isn't going to do it. Um, and therefore, I would still face the issue of, well, if I know that religiosity um, you know, uh, increases pro-social behavior, for instance, or decreases violence, then, then why not teach uh, uh, religion? By the way, you, you brought up the interesting point of, of that, that, of course, you know, I wouldn't be teaching religion because I'm not religious. Um, right. But, you know, it is a fairly well-known, um, not particularly well-kept secret that a lot of um, uh, people who teach religion especially in the Catholic Church, are actually either agnostics or non-believers. I'm talking about priests or you know, ordained priests. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and yet they go on and teach it. And they go well, on I wasn't and teach. claiming they were ethical according your, to your code. I was just asking whether your code required you to stop them, to try and stop them from teaching. Right. No, no, it doesn't require me oh, to stop them. Oh, I them. see. Yeah, that's, no, it doesn't that's a separate case I hadn't been talking about But in about fact, uh, they actually think of that as, a, I, I assume, as an eth- the ethical thing to do. And probably if asked, I mean, it would be interesting to actually go out there and, and ask some of these people. Uh, they probably will come up with that kind of uh, answer, which I would think it's a rationalization, but it is an answer that is, well, we know it's a good thing for people, and therefore, even though I personally don't believe in X, I'm going to teach X because it's good for people. Right. Um, so that, that uh, you know, that makes 
some sense to me. And by response to your original uh, sort of question, th these um, findings have not changed my mind about the general issue because my mind was already not as uh, not buying into the uh, sort of Dawkins Hitchens style. Uh, oh, religion is you know the the intrinsically bad, and it's clear, and it's so clear, obviously clear that a world without uh, religion would be better. First of all. One of the things that we have, uh, we have to um, look at is better in what sense? Uh, because, right. you know, yes. right? I mean, this, uh, this is not just an empirical question. I mean, it is, as we've talked about for most of these episodes, it is an empirical question. And as it turns out, there are empirical data out there that at least should be considered in the discussion. But it's also a philosophical question. Once you question. define better. I mean, right, there's exactly. empirical data for particular definitions of better that can be measured. That's and right. Yeah. That's right. And so, um, you know, so if you're talking about, you know, a number of beheadings, okay, I think we could agree that fewer beheadings is better uh, <laughs> or, you know, things like that. But if we're talking, for instance, about, you know, sort of general pro-social behavior, well, pro-social behavior has its own uh, drawbacks. I mean, societies that have very high levels of pro-social behaviors tend to be uh, sort of suppressing individualistic tendencies. And individualistic tendencies have all sorts of positive things on their own uh, to be sort of uh, valued and recommended. So it's not quite clear that, you know, depending on what, what one's uh, idea of a better society actually is, uh, even if one uh, demonstrates that religiosity increases pro-sociality, that they may not necessarily be a good thing in and of itself, or at least beyond a certain a certain limit, it, uh, we need to agree on what do we think is a better society. And I'm pretty sure that religious people would, um, uh, in general, especially certain partic particular religious people, would disagree with us on on what counts for a better society. For instance, right. if you're a fundamentalist religious person, um, as we know from a variety of backgrounds, not just Muslim but also Christian uh, or or Jewish, you know, those those people actually think that. Um, uh, a authoritarian kind of society where uh, you know women are subjugated and so on and so forth. I, uh, those are better societies. I don't think they're better societies at all. Um, yeah, and so I, I've even heard arguments that um, suffering is actually a good thing because it brings you closer to to Christ right. or or something right. like. I, exactly. I'm pretty sure Mother Teresa had views along these lines. That's right. But it wasn't it wasn't like suffering is worth it in the service of these other causes, um, but like it is inherently a good thing. Um, which is a little terrifying. Uh, it is. Yeah. That's so, right. any, yeah. B more broadly, I think I absolutely agree that the the question of what do we mean by better society is actually like a lot. A lot of the question rides on that uh, definition. Exactly. Um, now, th there's a couple of things that. I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Just to, to finish that thought, I um, I do like the idea of a society in which people have more true beliefs than false beliefs. Um, yes. Even holding constant the effect of those beliefs on their behavior towards each other. Um, but it's a, it's a weaker claim. Like it's harder for me to make that argument to convince other people who don't already share that preference of mine. If I can't point to some consequence of that, uh, right. of that condition that they care about too. Like all I can say is, well, I just think according to my personal ethics code, it's just better for people to have accurate beliefs. So it's just not that convincing, unfortunately. I think. Well, but but he's not convincing for whom exactly? Because uh, so uh, I would th I would think that a religious person values truth very much, regardless of consequences, right? I mean, after all, they think. Oh that yeah, I was right? think sorry. I was thinking of yeah. trying to convince someone who like is atheist, but like doesn't really believe that it matters to you know try to spread atheism, right? Um, because they care about you know 
pro-social behavior in some sense and and they don't care inherently about people having accurate beliefs right um right. although yeah, you know uh that said i i was after asking you that question i was sort of trying to think about well why does like i don't personally i don't spend a lot of time promoting secularism um but i still like I'm generally glad that it's happening and like generally think more secularism is a good thing. And I was trying to figure out why that, why I think that. Um, and I think, although don't necessarily hold me to this cause I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. off the cuff and I haven't looked up the studies, yada, yada. But I think that the mechanism that I would anticipate to be the biggest one, um, translating secularism into good consequences for the world isn't actually directly through influencing individual people's, you know, social behavior, but rather, the impact of like societies that have a lot of religious beliefs are societies that I, I think um, produce less sort of scientific, technological and philosophical progress that causes the, the societies and, right. and human civilization over time to like advance in ways that people generally consider good, like, like, you know, advances in quality of life, et cetera. I mean, the enlightenment is my like obvious, easy example to, to reach for of, you know, scientific progress, like, sanitation and refrigeration and electricity and vaccines and all those good things uh, advancing as religion had, you know, a, a decreasing hold on society. And those things caused like significant improvements in quality of life. And I think that that is the effect that I would expect to see in the long run with you the know, decrease in religion. That sounds um, sort of first glance, it sounds reasonable to me, but I can also come up with counterexamples. Like, you know, there yeah. are, well, there are uh, very regressive societies that are non-religious, like North Korea, uh, yeah. for instance. Well, and he, he is kind of their guy, yeah, like the dear well, leader. I don't know. Well, yes, but see what I mean. That then, it, you know, then, then it's not <laughs> No true positive. atheist society, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, the, other re- the other thing is that, of course, I, I'm trying to just to play devil's advocate, so to speak. Sure, sure. I'm trying to imagine the reaction of a sort of religious person who would point out that, um, you know, a lot of advances of science over the centuries have actually happened within a cultural milieu that was very religious, you know, but within uh, uh, Catholic or Protestant societies, for instance, and, and so on. Now, do you, ama- you, d- you did couch the, the, your, your statement in terms of, sort of um, societies in which religion has a decreasing hold, um, and that seems right to me. But one could also argue, you know, so the religious person could also argue that perhaps extreme religiosity is inimical to uh, science and, and uh, uh, improvement, uh, you know, technological improvement and so on. But, but, but uh, the relationship might not be linear at all. And there could be actually situations uh, where, you know, mi- um, middle levels or moderate religio- religiosity is actually somehow uh, a positive force for, for, uh, for change even in that area. I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it's Possibly. a question. It's an empirical question. But it's, uh, uh, it may be less clear-cut than, than, than we think. It there probably is, one, is. It tends to be. Yeah. There is only one, but there's one more thing that I want to um, point out before um, we, we leave the topic, which is, mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that comes out again from the from the uh, Lillenfeld uh, Amirati article in Skeptical Inquiry, which I thought it was a very important point. They said, uh, with all these uncertainty about the statistical data, the causal relationships, and so on and so forth, there's one thing that we can actually say for sure, uh, and that's an important thing. And, and and this is that because of those small the, the small size the small, the small magnitude of the of the correlations that they that, that people found between religiosity and prosocial behavior. It is absolutely incontestable that religion is not needed for people to be moral or to engage in prosocial behavior. So right. then whenever we hear somebody say, oh, 
you know, if you're non-religious, you're therefore obviously in, you know, non-moral or incapable of morality because you're, you're moral relativist and so on and so forth. That is simply empirically false. The majority of people, precisely because we know that the correlations uh, um, between religiosity and pro-social behavior are so small, that implies, as I said, as I mentioned earlier in the in, in the show, you know, the, 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 we're talking about explaining two, three, four percent of the variance. That implies that there is a lot of variance that has nothing to do in in the in the variation for for uh, pro-social or anti-social behavior that has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're religious or not. Which means that if you're not religious, you can obviously and demonstrably, statistically demonstrably, in fact, be uh, perfectly you know good and moral person. Yeah, and you know, I it used to like baffle me how anyone could claim that you know no one without religion can be moral, just because there are so many examples that you could point to of non-religious people who like are demonstrably like publicly extravagantly moral. Um, and I'm still kind of baffled how how people could claim that. But the only hypothesis I've come up with that might explain why someone could believe that is that they have, some, again, some kind of no true Scotsman fallacy going on where right. they, yes, they see the, the, you know, that Peter Singer, like, gives away all this money to charity or something, but somehow he's not doing it for the right reasons or with the right motivation, so they define it as not moral, something exactly. like that. Exactly. Anyway, uh, we could clearly go on much longer, but we are, in fact, uh, more than out of time. So why don't we wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks? Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book that I at first couldn't believe I hadn't recommended earlier because I uh, think very, very highly, of it, highly of it. It's called How to Measure Anything, um, and it's by Douglas Hubbard. Um, he uh, He's a professor, former professor, I guess, who runs... Um, like a sort of consulting company that helps um, mainly businesses um, and other teams make better decisions. Um, and the book is just, it's great on like a really practical level and also on a philosophical level. So there's a lot of really practical advice for how to make better predictions and how to sort of pin down the actual questions you care about, which is this like really important and often neglected step in figuring out the answer to a question. Um, so if, you know, if you care about like, uh, how well is my product doing? Or like, how good is this job? Like, those are very sort of vague concepts and, that you have to turn into, like the, the process of turning some turning a question into a measurable, testable thing is, even if you're not going to actually measure it or test it, a really good mental exercise to go through to get sort of a precise sense of what it is you even care about um, and, and, you know, what to base your decision on. Um, so he has practical tools for that, ways to sort of estimate things that seem like you couldn't possibly estimate simple ways to get a lot of to learn a lot about, about the world even if you can't do a you know giant randomized control trial like he gives one example of uh i think it was an opera an opera company that wanted to measure like audience satisfaction over time um to see whether their like renovation had improved audience satisfaction so they were coming mm -hmm. up with all these elaborate ways to like pull people and talking about sampling methods and finally someone was like actually why don't we just, or I think Hubbard suggested, why don't we just count the, the you know, percentage of standing ovations in the, you know, pre-renovation versus post-renovation state? 
Um, and in fact, this like actually correlated, you know, moderately strongly with the uh, the approval ratings they were thinking of getting. Oh, um, anyway, so uh, so there's just like a bunch of practical advice like that for sort of being more of a like being more of an empiricist about the questions you care about, um, not only for businesses, but, you know, personal questions as well. Excellent. Well, my article has to do with um, uh, my interest in, um, um, how shall we say, in the treatment, I guess, of, uh, of animals since I've become a, what I would broadly define as an ethical omniv- omnivore. So I, I eat anything, but I have to be, but I have a lot of limitations about where my um, food comes from. And uh, so this article is um, by uh, Tamara Stelling in the Washington Post. It's pretty recent. And it's entitled, Do Lobsters and Other Invertebrates Feel Pain? And it looks at the evidence. And as it turns out, it, the evidence is very difficult to come by because it's right. not easy to figure out whether an animal actually uh, feels pain or not. Uh, so, for instance, you know, a lot of people uh, say, you know, don't, I'm not going to eat lobsters because if they're dropped they s- alive in, you know, they, that's right. Because they, they scream they, when they go in the hot water. They scream in the hot water. As it turns out, that one actually is a bad reason because uh, that is... the sound of the air. Exactly. It's the, it's the yeah. high-pressure air going through the carapace and not, it's not, a, it's not a scream. But as it turns out, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, other than the obvious ethical implications, I think it's a, fu- it's a fundamentally interesting question in sort of neuroscience and even, if you, if you will, philosophy of mind. Um, I so I was interesting. <laughs> so I was interested in that, and and it's, it turns out, I mean, the article is very interesting. It, it, it goes in depth into some of the study, recent studies. But um, the, the the first thing that uh, researchers interested in these uh, issues um, did was to look for the presence of uh, nociceptive neurons. Uh, nociceptive neurons are the kind of neurons that actually are responsible for mediating the sensation of uh, pain in humans. Uh, the thinking being, you know, if the if the animal got those neurons, presumably it has, you know, it it, it feels the, the the similar similar sensations. As it turns out, it's not quite that obvious, uh, right. because of course nature and natural selection, especially, sort of recycles mm-hmm. stuff all over the place. So there is a bunch of proteins, for instance, that we have, and they ha- and and that in human beings um, uh, have a particular function, but they actually go back, you know, millions of years ago, or sometimes hundreds of millions of years ago. They, you know, plants may have them or bacteria may have them and they do, uh, in, in different contexts, they do something very different. So it, having a nociceptive receptor is not, is not enough. So the best thing that the, the people could come up with so far was a combination of presence of nociceptor, so nociceptors and behaviors. That is, uh, the idea is to try to distinguish uh, pain versus reflex. If an animal simply has an uh, automatic reflex, for instance, uh, uh, the, the best example is you know, pulling a leg out of an uh, um, insect, let's say a, a fruit fly, mm-hmm. versus pulling a leg out of a crab. And apparently the, re- the behavior that you elicit in that way is very, very different. Uh, the insect d- d- doesn't seem to care. It sort of brushes aside the thing and doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, take care at all of the wound or the missing leg or anything like that. It just keeps going. Uh, the, uh, the crab, on the other hand, does. Uh, it engages in, in, in all sorts of complex behaviors that we would associate with uh, you know, a uh, pain, a reaction to pain and taking care of the wound and so on and so forth. Uh, so, of course, that's not proof that the um, pulling the leg of a, of, a, of a crab causes pain, but it is as, as close as, as we can get to, uh, to that sort of conclusion based on... Uh, on empirical evidence. So there's a bunch of other examples like this uh, in the article, and uh, it really makes it feel... One of my favorite, for instance, is that um, the difference between um, octopus and squid. Um, squids, apparently, unlike octopus, don't have localized pain receptors. 
that is, squids are, are smart enough, you know, intelligent, complex enough that they very likely do feel pain. Uh, they have that. They present that kind of behavior that I that I mentioned a minute ago, and so on and so forth. And so do 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 octopus. The problem, the difference is that uh, squids um, have much less control over their tentacles. Uh, you know, they can't do specific things. They can't do anything, um, you know, to take care of a damaged tentacle, unlike an octopus. So their uh, pain receptors are spread and activated throughout the body. In other words, if you cut or injure a tentacle of an octopus, the pain seems to be limit, limited to that area, uh, the immediate vicinity of that area, just like it would be in a human being. But if you do the same with a squid, the pain spreads all over the body of the animal. And uh, it's so, so there's very interesting distinctions there and, uh, and something to, you know, to think about the next time that you pull a leg of a crab. Which I do all the time, so I'm sure this will come up. <laughs> Alive, because if you do it when they're dead, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we are we are well out of time, um, but it was a fascinating discussion, so it was worth it. Um, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>